The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. It is a privilege to be able to serve you this morning by preaching God's Word. I've preached the most out of the three of us who pastor this church together in the four years or so since we've been in existence. I actually ran the numbers. It's easy to do because we put everything on the website. I think I've done 114 sermons, excluding a couple that we might have not been able to record. So I think I'm warming up, and I'm, I'm just, I continue to be amazed and humbled that you keep coming back. <laughs> you know, I'm still aware of the privilege this is every single time. And I'm continuing to learn about the process involved in preparing to preach. Something crystallized for me this past week as I worked on the text. We're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verses 1 to 12. So you can make your way there uh, in your Bibles or on your devices. I'm coming to realize that a biblical text is a bit like a lake. When I come to a passage... Uh, Whether it appears daunting or intriguing, I feel the pull to dive in and to explore its depths. But here's what I'm learning. That natural instinct, that, that inclination, is not the only way to appreciate a lake or a text. Sure, you can plumb its depth, but you can also skip stones across the surface. Yes, you can swim it from shore to shore, but you can also carefully observe the way it reflects the world around you. Occasionally, God orders my week in such a way that it pushes me towards that second approach. To not dive deep, but instead slow myself down enough to sit quietly beside it, take in the scene, and be affected by it. And I believe that in spite of the many questions that could pique our curiosity in Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 12, it's meant to be felt deeply. So let's read this text, aware that we need God's help, if it is to confront our hearts and transform our affections. Ecclesiastes 9, 1 to 12. This is God's holy word. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all. How the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all. Since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. Also, the hearts of the children of man are full of evil, and madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope. For a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die. But the dead know nothing. And they have no more reward. For the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished. And forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. 
Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your, with your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are, are snared at an evil time, when it suddenly falls upon them. As we've preached through this book of Ecclesiastes, we've gotten to know the preacher whose words are presented to us here. Even if you haven't been with us for much of this series, even if today is your first time, this much should be clear from this text. The preacher is a man of deep emotions. He's not a detached researcher, clinically collating data. The journey he has taken in examining life under the sun has deeply affected him. And that's immediately helpful. You see, wisdom will not only be found in observing what the preacher makes of the world, but in embracing how he walks through the world. As difficult as life is to contemplate and, and experience, it's unwise for us to aim to be emotionally detached through its highs and lows. It's unwise to bury our heads in the sand or to bury ourselves in our pursuits so that we don't have to face what life is really like. Life under the sun is given to be fully engaged with all its joys and sorrows, just like we see Jesus do in the New Testament. This passage that we're going to be in is an exercise in emotional contrast. Where the preacher takes us is not new territory. He's spoken about many of these things before in this book. But just in case we manage to evade them before, he's putting them squarely in our path again. Life is unpredictable and uncontrollable. Death is indiscriminate and inevitable. He wants us to be encumbered by these inconvenient truths, to be interrupted in our relentless pursuit of gain so that he can lead us towards a life worth living under the sun. He wants again to direct us to God's gift of joy. Joy is at the center of this passage. And the preacher goes beyond encouraging to commanding, demanding even that we take a particular posture towards joy. So here's my best summary of what's in front of us in these verses. Wisdom demands that we pursue joy in all that God gives, though life is unpredictable and death is inevitable. The preacher wrestles with some stark and heavy realities. No matter how you live, everyone dies. Life will not turn out in the way you expect. We can't know when misfortune or death will come to us. Yet we must face that, feel the perplexity and the grief it brings, and still go after joy. And that joy will be found in places that we often overlook. God's everyday gifts. Wisdom demands that we pursue joy in all that God gives, though life is unpredictable and death is inevitable. The preacher's teaching in this passage is a sandwich. The bread is important, though it does not look appetizing at all. The slice on top tells us that death is inevitable. The slice at the bottom says life is unpredictable. 
But surprisingly, unexpectedly, and delightfully, the truth that the teacher has packaged between them is this. Joy is commanded. Now, one way you can eat a sandwich, and kids love to do this, is just kind of deconstruct it. You just kind of take it apart. And, you know, you know you have to eat the bread, so you eat that. But then you kind of leave all of that meat and all that nice stuff in, in the middle to eat last. So we're going to do that this morning. Because I think it's really going to help us to savor what the preacher is commending in this passage. So we're gonna, I'm, what I'm going to actually do is put the bread together, and we're going to have a kind of bread sandwich, which says, life is unpredictable and death is inevitable. And then we're going to go to the fact that joy is commanded. All right, so let's do it. We're actually not that far from the end of the book of Ecclesiastes. From our starting point today, we have another four chapters in front of us. Here we find the preacher beginning to pull together what he has learned from his hands-on evaluation and observation of life under the sun. He's reaching back across the scope of his search and engaging emotionally and intellectually with what he's found. And he is struggling with it all. You know, we have a phrase, serve your right or serve them right. And we say it when something unfortunate happens to someone as a result of something they perhaps have done. But to be honest, we sometimes say it when we just don't like people. The point is, there's misfortune that we witness in life that doesn't actually bother us that much. But there's misfortune that really makes us scratch our heads and really causes our heart to ache. That's what the preacher is wrestling with at the start of this chapter. He affirms in line with the perspective of faith expressed throughout the scriptures that wise and righteous people are in God's sovereign good hands. Psalm 1 verse 6 says, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, speaking to God's affection and approval for those who delight in his word and walk in his ways. This is what the preacher knows. But what bothers him is what we cannot know by observation. More than 2,000 years after this book of Ecclesiastes was written, another Jewish man, a rabbi in fact, wrote a book wrestling with the same perplexity as the preacher. That Harold Kushner book, when, uh, sorry, that, that Harold Kushner's book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People, written in 1981, became a number one bestseller and still continues to draw readers' attention, is a testament to the fact that the questions here in Ecclesiastes are contemporary concerns. When bad things happen to good people, is God acting towards them in love or hate? Are they getting what they deserve? No, the language of the preacher may seem strong, but when everything in our lives seems to be clicking into place, don't we feel like God loves us? And when everything is falling apart, don't we wonder how he feels about us? When you get into a car accident, when you don't make the cut or grade despite your best efforts, when your child is ill and needs to be hospitalized, when you just can't seem to get a job or to find your feet financially, no matter how hard you try, when friends choose others over you, when your marriage is plagued with conflict and disappointment, isn't it true that we wonder how God feels about us? And is there any point in trying to please God when you look around and you see people who you know to be wiser and more righteous than you and they are suffering? The preacher is clear that we who have trusted in Jesus and have been given his righteousness are in his gracious hands. But that doesn't mean that we can look at a person's circumstances and know what God thinks about them. As the preacher says, man does not know. 
Thankfully, this obliterates the simplistic thinking that, God, that says that God will bless you if you please Him. But it's an uncomfortable reality to experience and witness. We feel like life should not be this way. We don't know what God is doing in the events of our lives. We also don't know when misfortune will strike. That's what the preacher says in verse 12. So jump down there in your Bibles and look at that. For man does not know his time. That four means we need to give our attention to verse 11. It's vivid and memorable. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. No, the preacher is not saying that life is governed by chance. Back in chapter 3, he affirmed that God governs all of time. He's saying that from our vantage point under the sun, life can feel random. In other words, life is unpredictable. It doesn't play out in the way that you expect. Those with all the advantages do not necessarily win out. When Usain Bolt lined up in the final of the world championships in Daegu, South Korea in 2011, we had every reason to expect a win. He was the fastest man in the world. But we watched in horror as he false started and was disqualified. The race often goes to the swift, but not always. You have to factor in time and chance. There really are no guarantees. This point is one that the preacher has been hammering at us. We are not in control of our lives. Our abilities and exertions cannot guarantee the outcome that we desire. Of course, we should steward our gifts and take our opportunities. But wisdom prompts us to remember that we might not get what we're working for. We are like fish, swimming along obliviously, with plans and dreams who are suddenly caught in an evil net. We are like birds, minding our business, perhaps foraging for food, and then we get caught in a snare. These images imply not just misfortune, but death. We don't know the time when we will die. And death is indiscriminate. That's what the preacher is grieving over back in verse 2. No matter how you live, whether you serve the poor or exploit them, worship God or curse Him, live by high moral standards or wallow in filth, trust in Jesus or reject Him, whether you are good or evil, the same event happens to everyone. Everyone dies. Death is indiscriminate. The honest employee doesn't necessarily outlive the fraudster. The faithful husband and good father dies young and the sexual predator gets a long and comfortable life. As the preacher has lamented back in chapter 8 verse 14, sometimes the righteous get taken early and the wicked live long. Death is indiscriminate. And death is inevitable. The preacher is struggling with what he sees and experiences in a fallen world, a world under the curse which God pronounced in Genesis chapter 3. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Everyone dies. And it all feels so wrong. I mean, shouldn't God make a distinction between the good one and the sinner? The preacher says of it, This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to all. But the preacher is not indicting God. In this text, he laments the wickedness of our lives as much as he does the evil of death. 
This echoes what he said in chapter 7, verse 20. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Yet the way we experience death grieves the preacher. Like him, we know that God is good and just. But we can't see things from his perspective. We're left with the bewilderment of the limited perspective that we have as creatures. One of the things that makes reading a book like Ecclesiastes difficult for us is that we know that we know more than the preacher did. As wise as he was, he lived before the fulsome revelation that we have received in Christ. He lived, as it were, in the mist, and we live in the brighter light of the Son of God. But we need to recognize that he can serve us because we still live under the sun as he did. We know more, but we know it by faith, not by experience. We still have to deal with the loss and the experiential finality of death. Death robs us of those we love. So though we have hope, we grieve. And though we have hope, it doesn't make sense to us any more than it made sense to the preacher. Just on Friday, as I sat down to work on this text, I got a call from Sam, and she was sharing the news that the spouse of a colleague had died suddenly. Uh, and he's somebody known to some people here, and so they're grieving, and my heart grieves for the family because... I can't, I can't imagine. I just, you know, you, you, you try to imagine what it's like to suddenly lose your spouse that way. And I can't even begin to reach for the overwhelming pain that I think I'd feel in a situation like that. We preach the gospel because Jesus has told us that though the same event happens to the good and the sinner, what awaits them after death is not the same. In John 5, 28 to 29, he says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice, meaning Jesus' voice, and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. That judgment is what Jesus died to shield us from. So if you've never trusted in him to do that for you, I implore you, call on Jesus and be saved. And then learn to follow him in a local church that's being shaped by the good news about him. One of the things that's reflected back to us off the surface of this text is the wisdom of appreciating the gift of life, even if your life is miserable. Look at verse 4. In the ancient Near East, lions were admired as the king of, of, of animals, and dogs were despised. There's no pedigree fifi going on here. Dogs were not treasured pets that you'd spend a good money to get. They were scavengers. They'd walk around and they would stay alive by eating off the scrap heaps. The original audience for Ecclesiastes would, wouldn't esteem them any more than we would esteem a new Kingston rat. That's what we're dealing with here. But the preacher says a live dog is better than a dead lion. It won't matter much if you lived in luxury once you're dead. So recognize and appreciate the gift of life even if you feel like a dog. That's what he's saying. The author David Gibson helpfully summarizes the preacher's argument. To be alive is to have the day of opportunity in our hands in a way that we do not have when we're dead. The time is coming when all the things you think are most important in the world, all your strongest emotions, your love, your hate, your jealousy, the time is coming when they will all go cold and vanish 
and be forgotten. Again, Ecclesiastes is challenging to process because it seems to contradict our New Testament-shaped understanding of what happens after death. Prior to this, the preacher has given us hints that he knows that death is not absolutely the end of the story. And he'll say more in the chapters to come. But as he urges us to appreciate the gift of life, he doesn't contradict the rest of Scripture. Even the Apostle Paul, who famously said in his letter to the Philippians, to die is gain, affirmed that the advantage of continuing to live was the opportunity it gave him for fruitful labor. The opportunity it gave him to serve his brothers and sisters. Even Paul, when reporting that his colleague Epaphroditus had nearly died, affirmed God's mercy in sparing his life. Mercy to Epaphroditus and to Paul in saving him from sorrow. Death is surely a gateway for those of us who trust in Christ, but it's still a tragedy and an enemy whose demise we wait for. Life is unpredictable. Death is inevitable. Without, without wisdom, that's enough to kind of make you turn the lights back off, curl, curl up again, and go back to bed, isn't it? That's why the preacher wants us to recognize that even a difficult life is one worth living. But he's after more than that. He is forth, forcefully pushing us beyond mere acknowledgement to thorough enjoyment. So let's consider the fact that in this passage, joy is commanded. Look with me at verse 7 in the text. These verses are the sixth of what are often identified as the carpe diem passages in Ecclesiastes. It's a Latin phrase meaning seize the day. And this one is the most emphatic. Suspended between the bleakness of lamenting the inevitability of death and lamenting the unpredictability of life, the preacher not merely commends the enjoyment of life, but commands it. It seems that we'll only value life rightly if we realize how fragile and uncertain it is. The brilliance of the gift of life is seen most clearly against the dark backdrop of death and disappointment. The thing that sticks out is the forcefulness and nature of the first command. Go! I mean, it almost sounds like a commission, doesn't it? It's that kind of language. So he says, go, meaning don't sit and sulk. Get moving towards the good blessings that God has given you. He's demanding a particular posture and pushing us to seek joy in particular places. So think with me about that posture. I have good reason to believe that there are some of you who take a posture akin to a movie critic with you into daily life. Okay, you claim this movie is good. All right. But impress me. Show me how good it is. But that posture itself robs you of joy. You're not going to thoroughly enjoy the movie if you fold your arms waiting to see how it goes. The preacher is pushing us to engage with life as fans of the Creator. Early in Ecclesiastes, he told us to live with open arms. Now he's saying, now it's it's like he's saying, Get out there and grab the good stuff. But you can't grab God's blessings if you're suspicious of them. And being suspicious of God's blessings really means that you're suspicious of Him. But what can help us to trust Him is recognizing that here in this book of Ecclesiastes, He's been brutally honest with us. The preacher does not shy away from speaking of the darkness and pain of life. Arguably, there's no other voice in the Bible that's clearer in protesting the unhappy business that God has given us to be busy with. 
When trouble comes, you cannot look at the preacher and say, well, you never warned me. You can't say that to God. Yet, in a strange and wonderful way, this is what actually makes the preacher's voice so compelling when he commands us to chase joy. He is a preacher of joy. And emphatically so. And it means that God, who is unashamed to tell us how perplexing and painful life under the sun will be at times, commands that we, his beloved children, receive his gifts of joy. When we take the posture of a critic, we're more prone to noticing everything that seems wrong, to feeling every hardship and discomfort more acutely, because deep down that's what we're expecting and dreading. But the best scenes in our lives can slip by us because we're not on the edge of our seats looking for them. In contrast, when we've been retrained by this book of Ecclesiastes, we'll eagerly lean into God's goodness in everyday things. And this is especially important because when it comes to life, you're not going to get the opportunity for a rewatch. Notice this now. Once again, the preacher insists that joy isn't found out there as the prize for some arduous quest. The place where we are to pursue joy is right where we are. No, in receiving God's everyday blessings. Eat your bread with joy. Enjoy your meals. Slow down. Treasure your lunchtime and savor what God has provided. Eat with your family as often as you can. Eat with your friends. Don't reject the joy of eating with others in a quest for the body you desire. Yeah. Yeah, that's here. Eat with joy. (laughs) And drink your wine with a merry heart. Enjoy the beverage of your choice. Yes, even alcohol. Contrary to what many Christians think, God is not a prohibitionist. In fact, God approves of our enjoying the gifts he has given us. That's why he made the world with smells and flavors and textures and colors and gave us the capacity to experience and enjoy them. This doesn't mean that these gifts cannot be abused. The same Bible that commends the enjoyment of food and drink warns against gluttony and drunkenness. Think about this. Jesus said about himself, the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. He enjoyed food and did so with many kinds of people. On the night when Jesus was betrayed, he shared a meal with his disciples and gave them bread and wine to symbolize the sacrifice that he was about to make. He left us with a meal to remember him with, to share with joy until he comes. And when he returns, everyone who trusts in him is invited to a marriage feast. Every meal, therefore, can be a reminder of and an invitation towards the fellowship that Jesus creates. Every delightful beverage can be a foretaste of the future. Every act of hospitality can echo the love of the gospel. Verse 8 is fascinating and it needs some explanation. Look at it with me. Let your garments always be white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. These are symbols of joy. White garments were for festive occasions. The oil was for beautification and self-care. You might be, it's a little bit unfortunate, but we're probably more familiar with the symbols of mourning in the scriptures. Sackcloth and ashes. Carolyn Mahaney and Nicole Whitaker cut to the chase when they say, celebration must be the prominent tone of our lives. David Gibson says this, Don't think that because you're going to die, it doesn't matter how you dress or how you look. Rather, look after yourself. The world is meant to be a place of color and life and beauty. 
So we can give attention to our parents, not with the goal of self-promotion or self-celebration, but as grateful enjoyment for the gift of life. So we have eating, drinking, and dressing as venues for receiving joy. What else does the preacher point us towards? Well, he points us towards marriage. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. It's at this point in the book of Ecclesiastes that it becomes obvious that the original primary target audience was young men. Now, that was common for wisdom literature in the ancient Near East. But that doesn't mean that if you're not a young man, you can't benefit from what the preacher is saying here. It also doesn't mean that if you're not married, you're at a disadvantage when it comes to joy. What the preacher offers here in this text is not an exhaustive list of the blessings through which God means to give us joy. It's a representative list. This is Gibson again. These things are a way of saying, when God made the world, he made it good. And no amount of being a Christian, being spiritual, ever changes the fact that God puts you in a physical world with hands and food and drink and culture and relationships and beauty. So with that understood, it will benefit us to give some attention to marriage because I believe this is the only time marriage is mentioned in this book of Ecclesiastes, at least explicitly. We kind of reflected on the implications of chapter 4. The command here, if you are married, is to pursue joy in your relationship with your spouse. Now, marriage certainly was damaged by sin, but sin did not destroy the possibility of joy. Marriage isn't merely a good building block for a stable society, but on a personal level, this kind of hardship that we just reluctantly embrace. You know, we're not supposed to be toughing it out. You're like, oh boy, this sucks, but I guess God said I should do this. So let's just go. I, I, a friend of mine sent me an unfortunate question from a Christian man who was basically saying to her this week, yeah, yeah men hate marriage. Christian men hate marriage. You know, it's just like... Yeah, it's a horrible way to live, but hey. I mean, it's, it's only because I had to preach for you I didn't give an extensive reply to this thing. Because as Christians, we need to be shaped by the Bible. You know, that's one of those basic things we're aiming for. Yeah. Um, here we are told, we are commanded, follow me. Sometimes, you know, God commands things and... You know, you're, you're kind of used to, well, don't murder. Yeah, God, I won't do that. It says, enjoy life with the wife whom you love. <laughs> it's a command. Enjoy life with, the sp- with your spouse whom you love all the days of your heavy life. What the preacher is saying here is that marriage can be a haven in this frustrating and fleeting life. But we need to learn to appreciate and approach it as a venue for receiving joy from the hand of God. And we need to remember that, the scriptures, that, that when the Scriptures teach us to love and teach us how to love and therefore how to find joy, we don't find it through selfishly demanding it, but by laying our lives down. Now, of course, all of this learning is what we try to work out together in community. That's why we did things like a marriage seminar and all of that stuff. That's why we're walking together as couples, because we know the temptations we face. But here, if you're ever looking for a place, we are explicitly commanded, enjoy your marriage. No, the joy on offer here is not only the joy of companionship, but all the dimensions of married life, including the gift of sex. Many aspects of this fallen world can get in the way of the joy God meant for husband and wife to experience through sex. Physical illness, sexual brokenness through past experiences. Xander, I don't know why you're coming up here right now. 
Maybe, maybe you just wanted your parents to pay attention right here. Amen, amen. Yeah, so we, we do have a challenge with this era because we can carry baggage with us that gets in the way of us enjoying God's good gift of sex. So bad past experiences. Um, how our desires change over time and plain old exhaustion. Yet the preacher still says, go, enjoy life with your spouse. In fact, enjoy your spouse. It's okay if that requires some work, some prayer, some patient conversations, and some wisdom from others. But how do you do that if you have a particularly difficult marriage? Well, the starting point that this text points to is gratitude. And that, that, that's the kind of banner over all of this enjoyment. Recognizing that these are gifts from God and responding to them with gratitude. If we're grateful for our spouse, we'll find that we'll be able to enjoy our marriage to a greater measure. No, it's not going to perfect your marriage. But it changes your perspective. We'll be focused on the ways they are a blessing to us rather than the ways they disappoint us. You cannot control or change your spouse, but you can learn to receive joy. Okay, here's a good stone to skip across this passage. How does this teaching shape our understanding of spirituality? When you think of spirituality, do you think of eating or fasting? Drinking or abstinence? Do you think of sex as carnal but necessary for populating the earth or as worship? The commentator Ian Provan points this out. There has always been within the Christian tradition an ascetic tendency that understands true spirituality as involving the shunning of created things, food, wine, sex, rather than the enjoyment of these things in thankfulness to God who has blessed us with them. The teacher helps us to see that the latter is the true spirituality. The final way that we pursue joy in verse 10 is in living wholeheartedly. There shouldn't be a difference in how we approach the things we want to do and the things we do not want to do. Or the things, you know, the things we love versus things, well, I have to do that, so I'm, I'm just going to get on with it. To do so is to live a self-centered life rather than a God-centered one. And it does not actually lead to joy. It's amazing how much of the time we get miserable about things and hope that getting miserable about them will make us happy. It's entirely unintuitive, but that's how we are in our fallen hearts. So, of course, this verse can help us with thinking about work. Now, Ecclesiastes has said much about work, but I still think it's worth making this one application from this verse. This verse frees us from thinking joy will be found in your dream job, or at least in a better one than the one you have right now. God doesn't want us to wait for joy at some later stage in our career or even after we finish school if we're not enjoying going through school. He wants us to pursue joy where we are and in what we're doing, even if we're doing something we don't particularly like. We do this by embracing that today God has given us the opportunity to work with all our might as an expression of our gratitude to Him. The New Testament echoes this command and amplifies both the significance and the benefits. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So we work hard at our heavenly job because we'll be given a heavenly reward. We work with joy because what we do is what God has given us to do in serving Jesus. 
You know, one of the humblest things we can do in the face of these commands, if we're struggling to find joy in anything, in fact, if we're struggling to find joy in everything, perhaps maybe we're suffering from depression or going through a really difficult season, one of the humblest things we can do is to ask God to help us, to ask Him to awaken our taste buds and to thank Him for each moment of even the smallest joy. Even remembering that life won't always be like this can be a source of joy. A few weeks ago, I heard and then saw a man standing in the vicinity of King's House shouting at the passing cars. I immediately assumed that he was a street preacher. Unfortunately, his angry demeanor matched what I've witnessed before from many other street preachers. But whatever he was saying was just kind of lost in the noise of the traffic as the lights turned green and I continued on my way. If we're being honest, sometimes a Sunday service like this is not much more than a pause at the traffic lights before we resume our frantic pursuit of meaning and significance. Even if you're not checking your watch, eager to move on, it's easy to leave here and, Im- and get immediately reabsorbed in, into what can feel like joyless demands and hopeful efforts. The preacher here in Ecclesiastes is shouting at us. But when he's at the top of his lungs in this text, he's not menacing. He's not threatening anything, well, except our blind preoccupations, or propensity to brood and sulk and complain, or tendency to coddle our anxieties and to arrange and display our discontentments as we run ourselves ragged, seeking self-made success. Once again, he would interrupt us with the truth that we are not in control of our lives. Death is inevitable. Life is unpredictable. But we can, by God's grace, humbly embrace that and receive and seize each day that we're given. The preacher doesn't mean to detain us, but to redirect us. He says, go. Go enjoy the gifts that God has graciously showered on you today. That's wisdom's loving demand of those whom God is shepherding through this heavenly world. And our joy in everyday life should only be heightened by what has been revealed to us in Jesus, the one who is wiser than Solomon. We now know that neither death nor life nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We now know that because of his death on our behalf, what is awaiting us on the other side of death is a feast and a wedding. So go. And humbly and gratefully enjoy God's gifts all the days of your fleeting and perplexing life under the sun. There's no wiser way to live. Let's pray. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.